Please stand with me. And let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. This will be our New Testament reading before our sermon text in Zechariah 7. This morning, we, the sermon was on one of the great, uh, famous passages of the New Testament. Tonight, we'll be back in that out-of-the-way, less famous, less well-known portion of God's Word and the Minor Prophets. And yet, there too, the Lord has for us challenges and treasures for us to heed and learn from and be encouraged by. Uh, But first, here from the New Testament, set some context. We'll read Matthew 9, verses 9 through 17. Let's ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would please give us understanding and attention to believe and obey your word as you bring it to us Um, in the scriptures. We um, pray you would please... Give clarity to the preacher and attentiveness to the listeners for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the Skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. Amen. Now let's turn back to Zechariah chapter 7. hear those pages rustling a little longer. We're turning to the Minor Prophets. Uh, Zechariah 7. Um, I want to just say before I read this, um, chapters 7 and 8 really go together. And so the end of the train of thought that starts at the beginning of chapter 7 really, really finishes at the end of chapter 8. It's too much to take in one sermon, um, but although, I just want you to understand that although we're going to end on sort of a, a downbeat, a down note, at the end of chapter 7, the uh, text does bring us back up um, uh, to greater joy and hope by the end. But um, we'll just consider this week and next week as uh, going together. Okay? So Zechariah 7 is what we'll read tonight. 
In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, they would not hear. So they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land was left desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Amen. You may be seated. There's a book of poetry that I grew up with. Uh, We have a copy now in our house called Favorite Poems Old and New. I just like to read it. Um, And I have to admit, though, um, I mostly enjoyed as a kid, I mostly liked reading the section of uh, funny poems. There's a whole section of like nonsense poems, limericks and whatnot. And uh, there was one of them in that section by a, a, a guy named George Strong, and it was about a hunter who made himself some mittens out of an animal skin, made them, it says, with the fur side inside. Made them with the skin side outside. He, to get the warm side inside, put the inside skin side outside. But he, to get the cold side outside, put the warm side fur side inside. That's why he put the fur side inside, why he put the skin side outside, why he turned them inside outside. Okay, so I hope you got all of that because this is really important for you to know. Uh, It's kind of goofy. It's a nonsense poem, right? Um, But then... Uh, People are goofy sometimes. People are prone to all kinds of nonsense, even in very serious aspects of our lives. Nowhere more, perhaps, than in our relationship with God and our perspective on spiritual things, where we are, indeed, so often tempted to confuse 
the inside with the outside. Remember how Jesus once said, Woe to you, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. First clean the inside, that the outside also may be clean. I think that's a good entry point for us into understanding what in the world is going on here in Zechariah chapter 7, which we're going to take in uh, three parts tonight. First will be the right thing for the wrong reason, verses 1 through 3. And second, answering a question with a question, verses 4 to 7. And third, going back to go forward, verses 8 to 14. So first, the right thing for the wrong reason. Okay, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month. Okay, so we've seen these kinds of uh, date indicators before in um, Haggai and Zechariah, right? Um, This sets this prophecy about two years after the prophecy of chapter 1. Two years later. So time is getting on here. The uh, renewed construction work on the temple has been going on for a while now. And that means that this is kind of a period of transition in Judah and Jerusalem and the broader Jewish world. Where it's, it's becoming more and more visible, more and more obvious that, wow, the exile is really, really over. There's really a temple being built in Jerusalem. And and that means that Jewish people, not only in Jerusalem, but also in other places, would have been starting to realize, maybe we shouldn't have an exile mentality anymore. It looks like these people who have gone back to Jerusalem, they're, they're really going to stay there. This is going to stick. They're really restoring the capital city of Israelite life and faith. And and so maybe we should start thinking, are are there some changes that we should be making where we live uh, to reflect that? Even though we don't live in Jerusalem, we should be making some changes to reflect that new reality that there is a temple once more in the heart of our homeland. Okay, now scholars have some different opinions about these messengers in verse 2, and and where they're actually from. We don't know very much about these people. And you look at verse 2 in the ESV translation, and you say, well, obviously, they're just some people from the city of Bethel, that historic city of the northern kingdom, or I guess some Jews had resettled. Maybe some Jews from Jerusalem had gone out there and settled down. Um, And that seems to be what the ESV is indicating in its translation here. Um, Just so you know, it is also possible that Bethel the word Bethel is actually part of one of the names. That there are these uh, two people named Bethel Sherazer being one and Regimelech being the other, so two double names. And if that's the case, then, then it, it's not telling us what city they're from at all. And in fact, because of the nature of these names, it, it, it's possible that they came from Babylon to ask this question. Um, again, scholars uh, differ on where they come down on this. But... Um, These messengers could be sent by Jews living outside the promised land. 
Okay, right? So not all Jews came back to Jerusalem when the exile was over. They continued to live around the Persian Empire. So we don't have to settle for certain who exactly these people are and where they're from, because the main point is clear here. The main point is that there are these Jews who don't live in Jerusalem, and where are they going to look for authoritative guidance about this matter of religious practice? They are going to Jerusalem. They are going to the temple. They're going to this beating heart of Jewish life. They're going to this place where they know there are true prophets receiving revelation from God. There are true priests here who are, able going, who are going to be able to teach us about the law of God. Um, there are true leaders that we can trust and count on to direct us how we ought to be living uh, further abroad. And so in general, this seems like a really good thing. This seems actually really healthy for Jews from outside the promised land to be looking to Jerusalem for leadership. So, so far, so good. It also seems like a good thing that they are here entreating the favor of the Lord, which is exactly what they should be doing. Um, uh, so they're in, the intent here, uh, the stated intent, the stated intent is to clarify what does the Lord want us to do? How can we make sure that our religious practice, our rituals conform to the latest um, kind of best practices that God has given to the covenant people through the priests and through the prophets. And again, that's a good thing to want to know. They've come to the right place. Okay? And so here's the specific question that they want to ask. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So you might think, well, what in the world is, is that all about? Well, if you have a cross-reference Bible and you check the footnotes on that verse, um, it'll probably send you to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings, chapter 25, verse 8. And this is the chapter in 2 Kings, near the end uh, of the book, that describes the final defeat of Judah by Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. 586 B.C., about 70 years before this. So Judah's king has been captured, Zedekiah. Zedekiah's sons have been killed, and in verse 8 of 2 Kings 25, it says, In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that is the day when Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord. That is why they fasted in the fifth month. The Babylonians burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down and he broke down the walls and he carried the people into exile. It all happened in the fifth month. I think at one point George W. Bush tried to make September 11th like Patriot's Day or something like that. But nobody really calls it that, right? We just call it September 11th. We call it by the month of the year. You could say it's the 11th day of the ninth month, right? And um, I guess, you know, now that you, now we mention it, the, I think already for us here in the U.S., the memory of that day is kind of fading away, um, the vividness of it at least. People don't do, those, do the kind of big annual commemorations the way that we used to maybe 10, 15 years ago. 
But you think about the exiles in Babylon, <clears throat> the events of that fifth month, all of those years ago, those events changed their lives um, much more drastically even than September 11th changed any of ours. These people were living away from their homeland for all this time because of what had happened that month of that year. And so what they had started to do was they regularly and religiously, and I mean that literally, they kept that memory alive every year by this ritual fast. They had this special period of community mourning every year, remembering the destruction of Jerusalem and in particular the destruction of the temple. But imagine what Jews around the Persian world would be thinking now. Wait a second, now the temple is being rebuilt. Now there are Jews once more living in Jerusalem. Not us, but other people have gone back. And so can you, can you please tell us, priests, can you please tell us, prophets, should we keep doing this every year? Should we keep holding this fast or should we stop now, now that things are better? And that seems like a pretty legitimate question, right? In fact, it seems like a pretty important and very practical one. And you might think, well, this is good, right? They want to get this detail right. And by sending a delegation to Jerusalem, it appears that they are doing the right thing. But are they doing it for the right reason? That's the big question. And rather than answer that question directly, um, I'm going to let that lead us straight into the second point answering a question with a question. This is something that um, Jesus does in his ministry from time to time in his interactions with people in the Gospels. For instance, when the rich young man comes and asks Jesus, uh, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? Right? He's, he's probing at what lies behind that man's question. If you come to Jesus just seeking moral guidance, if that's all Jesus is to you, just a moral teacher, well, then what's the point of coming to him? Because other people can give you moral guidance. If you think Jesus is just another man who happened to have really good ethical insights about life, well, then what you're going to get from him in principle is really no better than what you could get from anybody else because you have to assume if, if he's just a man, then he's a sinner too, just like you. So why do you expect him to have this authority to tell you right from wrong? I mean, he's not, obviously. He's, not, he's obviously not a sinner. But by answering a question with a question, Jesus is revealing that that's the unstated assumption behind the young man's question. And Jesus is not just going to let that go. He's not going to accept that assumption that, that Jesus is just a good moral teacher. What Jesus wants to do is he wants to get to the heart of the matter. He wants to challenge that man's understanding of who Jesus is. He's not just another law teacher. He's the law giver. And he's the law keeper who can perfectly keep the law in the way that young man couldn't. Okay, I guess I've gotten off, off track a little on the rich young man. Uh, let me, let's think about another occasion where Jesus answers a question with a question. Uh, this one was a trick question when the uh, religious leaders ask him, so Jesus, where do you get this authority to do these things that you're doing? Again, 
Jesus comes back by asking them, oh, let me ask you, where did John the Baptist's authority come from? Was he from heaven or was he from men? He's turning the dilemma back on them. Now they're going to have to either show their true colors to the people. Uh, We actually don't think John was a real prophet. And then the people would have gotten very upset at them because they did think John was a true prophet. Or they have to say, well, uh, sure, he was, he was uh, from God. And then Jesus, the follow-up would be, well, then why didn't you believe him? In particular, the things that he said about me. And so Jesus does this in his ministry. He uses this strategy of answering a question with a question. We want to think about why. What is he doing when he does that? What he's doing is he's probing people's motives. He's probing the unstated assumptions behind their very loaded questions. Jesus is not just going to play along. What he's going to do is he's going to get to the heart of the matter, which, by the way, is the title of tonight's sermon, The Heart of the Matter. And that is what the Lord, through Zechariah, wants to get at here, starting in chapter 4. So, we want to know about fasting. Should you keep doing it or should you stop? Well, let me ask you a question about fasting. Why have you been fasting in the first place? Why have you been doing this in the first place? What does it even mean to you when you observe this annual fast? You probably think of this annual fast as something that the Lord has been really excited about, really pleased with you about. As though the Lord is in heaven looking down and saying, wow, just look at those people. They went a whole day without eating. That is devotion. That's humility. I am so impressed. Props to them. I guess I'm, I'm exaggerating, right? Um, but that's the sort of thing Zechariah is trying to point out. Do, do you think that that's what the Lord would have said about this annual fast? Obviously not. Well, let's see what Zechariah actually says here. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? Was it for me? Um, by the way, you notice how Zechariah throws in here this other fast that they were also observing, not just the fifth month, but also the seventh. Uh, apparently, they would have more than one fast every year. There were these other tragic events from that same time period um, that, that apparently they, they had other times of, of mourning and humiliation for. Uh, I'll let you follow up the cross-references for the seventh month on your own sometime. The point is, the Lord knows all about their fasting, it's like he's saying, I see what you're doing there. Yes, I know about that fifth month fast you've been observing. I, in fact, I know about the other one, too, that you didn't mention. I'll mention it for you. And I know you might think that I'm really impressed by those. But I'm asking you now, why did you do it? Why have you been fasting? Because the Lord is trying to get across to them. He doesn't really care so much about that outward ritual as he cares about their reasons for doing it. What is going on in your heart when you go through that ritual every year? Because you've got to understand, if you're going through that ritual, 
just for the sake of going through the ritual because you think that that's what I want, that I want that ritual, that I want to see you go without food for a time, that that's what will please me. And you're completely missing the point. Not just the point of the fast, but the point of the exile, the point of the destruction of the temple. So the Lord in his mercy is going to correct them. He's going to show them what he really is concerned about. Which is really no different from what the Lord is interested every other day of your lives, he says. And that's what he's getting at in verse 6. Verse 6, let's not even talk about these special fast days. What about all the other 363 days of the year? or however many, when, when you're not fasting, what about then? What about the days when you're eating and drinking? Why are you doing that? Do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? You are living your entire lives not in a God-centered, God-oriented way. You are living basically for yourselves. Your daily life is all about you And because of that, your religious life, your rituals, are likewise much more about you than they are about me. That's what the Lord is saying. This reminds me very strongly of something the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is dealing with the question of meat that's been sacrificed to idols. This is a big question for the Corinthians. Should we buy this meat and should we eat the, buy and eat this meat that's being sold in the markets even though we know that it has been sacrificed in pagan temples? So we sacrificed it in the pagan temple and then the animal, they, they can sell the meat in the marketplace. Are Christians allowed to eat that? And uh, Paul guides them through that ethical question, pretty nuanced way through the chapter. But by the end of the chapter, he's basically telling them, look, you need to make sure you have straight what the main thing is here. The point about this meat sacrificed to idols is not that there's something wrong with the meat. God made the meat. It's probably very delicious. Um, God doesn't view that meat itself as somehow tainted or like magically, spiritually poisonous or something, you you need to be thinking not so much about that outward action as about why you are eating it or not eating it. And so he comes to the famous verse 31 where he says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the crucial thing. In fact, it will often be what guides you um, in many ethically kind of ambiguous situations where the Word of God doesn't give you an exactly black and white answer, a black and white rule for deciding what to do. But that's okay, because what you haven't given clearly in the Word of God is this reason for living, that you don't live for yourself, you live for Him. You live for his kingdom. You live for his purposes. And you can be asking the question, what's going to achieve that in this particular circumstance? 
Now, of course, we have to be careful here, right? We have to be careful not to use that thought process um, dishonestly to talk ourselves into sinning when God's word does speak clearly about a particular action, a particular behavior, and we just don't want to obey it. And so we use this to kind of rationalize, oh, but I think if I'm living for the glory of God, maybe he'd actually rather that I disobey his law. Oh, it's like the sort of thing that leads a man to say, oh, God told me to leave my wife. I think it'll glorify him more if I'm married to this other person instead. No, it's nonsense. It's ridiculous. Sometimes the Lord speaks very clearly, and when he speaks clearly, we need to obey clearly what his word clearly says. At that point, you're not living for God's glory at all. You're dishonestly using that language of God's glory to justify and rationalize your sin. But then, then see, we're really back where we started. We're back to valuing the religious trappings more than we value what God actually values, which is his honor, his glory. That is the heartbeat of the Christian life. That is our chief end. It's our purpose for living. Uh, I thought I'd mention in passing here, I think there's a a really specific kind of narrower application for us here that I was thinking about, about how we view the Sabbath day as the people of God. Uh, Because the kinds of questions people are asking here about the fast of the fifth month remind me of some questions that sometimes we start asking about the Sabbath day. Uh, Can you just give me a list of the things that I'm allowed to do and the things I'm not allowed to do? And often we ask for that list because what we really want is to enjoy ourselves as much as possible. We want to enjoy what we want as much as possible. And we want a list of do's and don'ts to help us maximize that personal enjoyment and pleasure instead of focusing on the actual meaning of this day that God's given to us to rest in him and to worship him. Um, And that's not to say that there aren't any do's or don'ts. You know, the Lord really is calling us on the Lord's day to rest from uh, our words and works and employments and recreations, even things that are lawful on other days. But on this day, he's told us, set those aside. Take up the day in worshiping me. Work and play, we are to set aside as much as possible to engage in that holy rest of worship and fellowship. Um, including, by the way, works of mercy, right? To bless one another, to relieve suffering like Jesus did on the Sabbath day. And so we shouldn't use this this principle that, well, it's the heart of the matter that really matters. We shouldn't use that as a, as a pretext to kind of let ourselves get away with just using Sunday for our own personal pleasure. Oh, because it's really my heart that God cares about, so it doesn't matter what I do as long as my heart is right. No, what we should be doing is we should be seeking by the grace of God to get a heart that desires, to get a heart that desires the kind of rest that God wants us to have on the Lord's Day. See the difference there? That's, if that's our desire, we should be desiring a God-centered heart. Desiring a heart for which obeying God's rules will be the most natural thing in the world. Because we've got the inside and the outside in the right place. Instead of putting the cold side, skin side, outside. 
and vice versa, like that silly poem. Right? Be seeking a God-centered heart, a heart devoted to the glory of God so that we want what God has said he desires to give us. Let's make that our pursuit. Well, we come at last here to verses 8 through 14. Going back to go forward. Now, again, I mentioned this earlier. We're stopping here at kind of a low point in Zechariah's train of thought. Chapter 8 is going to continue. It's going to bring us back up out of the valley. But first, it's, it's instructive that the Lord feels the need here to review what got the people of Judah into the exile in the first place. It's interesting, we, we never get an outright answer to the question, why have you been fasting every year? Was it for me that you fasted? That's kind of a rhetorical question. The answer is left implied. Apparently, it was at least partly for selfish, ritualistic reasons. But verse 8, turning the corner, starts to get at a different question. If that's was a bad reason for fasting. What was, would the right reason have been? When you fasted every year in the fifth month, why should you have been doing that? What should have been the purpose of that annual fast? The answer is the whole purpose of that annual fast was to remember why Judah went into exile in the first place. It was supposed to be a day of national mourning to lead the people to humble themselves to repent of the very things that sent them into exile under the judgment of God. And so the Lord's point in this last section is to focus the people on that. If you focus on the meaning of the exile, then the meaning of the destruction of the temple, then hopefully hopefully that will lead you to become much more concerned, much more concerned with things like Justice and kindness and mercy. Much more concerned with those things than you're concerned with this ritual precision that you're asking about. So he says, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That was the prophetic message to Judah back before Babylon took over. But, of course, they refused to pay attention to it. The people were stubborn. It says they made their hearts diamond hard. Diamond hard, the hardest rock. And that is why the exile happened. It's because they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. That was the occasion for the great tragedy. That was the historical root of your annual fast, he's saying. Wouldn't it be tragic today if you continued the ritual, but you forgot the reason it existed in the first place? Wouldn't it be tragic if you kept on fasting, but you forgot that awful judgment and the reason that it happened. Because if you forget 
guess what's going to happen? You're going to repeat it. And that judgment can happen again in your generation. Zechariah wants, the Lord wants, the Jews of this generation to remember and to care about the reason for the destruction of Jerusalem much more than they care about this annual commemoration of it. So in the end, the message of this last part of the chapter is very simple. And it's really a message that's so important for God's people in every generation is to beware above all things of a hard heart. Beware of a hard heart. Look out in your own heart for the warning signs of being stubborn, of refusing to listen. You don't want to ever become the kind of person where nobody can tell you anything. The kind of person where you're always justifying yourself. You're always excusing yourself. You're always rationalizing your actions. You're always explaining why you're actually the victim here. Other people are always the problem. Remember the, the people of Judah who refused to listen to the Lord. These people who turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears so they might not hear and they made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the prophets. Don't let that ever be you, people of God. Rather, listen to what the prophet is calling God's children to hear, is to a soft heart, not to a perfect heart that is without sin, not in this life, but to a soft heart. A soft heart where we're aware of our sin, where we are quick to confess it, to turn our backs on it, quick to let it go, quick to listen when it's pointed out to us instead of getting defensive, quick to turn away from it, and quick, most of all, to run again and again to the arms of our Savior Jesus, the perfectly obedient one who never sinned, but who obeyed and suffered in our place. And who took on the cross the great anger of the Lord of hosts, Zechariah speaks of. The great anger of the Lord of hosts against our sin. That's what Jesus experienced when he died on the cross. So that we might be forgiven and restored. So that he might give to us those soft hearts we need. Soft hearts that receive with ease and and openness the impression of His Word, the impression of His grace, and the impression, moreover, of His own character, so that we begin to resemble Jesus. We begin to resemble His true judgments, His kindness, His mercy, His uh, compassion towards the vulnerable, these, these character qualities of obedience, a changed kind of life that's what the Lord Jesus is like and what he wants to make us like. Just got to start with making sure we keep our hearts right side in and right side out. Don't get your heart inside out by confusing outward ritual, outward motions that look and feel religious and holy with the heart of the matter. Let's not get so preoccupied with those Outward things. 
that we miss what God is really looking for in his people. Okay, let's pray. Our God, we don't want to be the kind of people who clean the outside of the cup and leave the inside still dirty. And we don't want to be the kind of people who paint whitewash on the outside of the cave when inside is full of dead men's bones. Lord, we are so easily just distracted and preoccupied with wanting to look and feel and seem religious or holy or smart or wise or godly or whatever. And those are not the things you care about. We ask that you would give us soft hearts to receive your word and receive that impression of your grace, of your law, and of the character of Christ himself. So that we would be on the inside the kinds of people you're making us to be. So that we would live not just in our outward religious actions of worship and outward Christianity, but that we would live every day, every moment, every little detail of our lives for the same single burning purpose, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.